What's up and welcome to another episode of Half Hour with Astra Theater Company. Today we have many guests and this is a sort of first for us, but we're super excited about it. So the first one that I'll introduce is a, a marketing director for Astra Theater Company, Ms. Brooke Lacey. Hello world. And we're also interviewing two amazing special guests today, Sarah Quinn Taylor and Trevor McChristian. What's up, y'all? Hey. How's it going? Good. good. Living the dream. Living the, the coronavirus dream. As, yeah. as it's, not, it's not my dream, but it's somebody's. <laughs> Barely hanging on. <laughs> How has um, the pandemic sort of been, I don't know, um interpreted in each of your lives right now in terms of what what were you doing right before the big shutdown and what's your life looking like now uh, crying in the club okay so i was doing um i was fortunate enough to be employed doing an american in paris at jury lane theater in um chicago well it's outside of chicago um, and I had been doing that for almost three months. And then the m shutdown happened in March. So it was a two show day for us. And we had done the matinee. And then I understudied Jerry. And he had called out, Josh Drake had called out of that evening show. So I had to put in in between shows. And then <laughs> they were, like, they were okay. like, hey, by the way, tonight is um the last show. And Josh was like, Oh, well, I guess I got to do it. <laughs> no. no. I know. It was really wild. It was really wild. But that was where I was. And then I went to Florida to quarantine with my boyfriend and then his family. And now I'm in Kansas. And he actually is coming here on Friday. Very cool. I mean, not, I mean, that is horrible, but. <laughs> <laughs> the only part of that story that I wish was different is that you had your put in and then they canceled the evening they show were like, and you were going to go on, but they were like, mm -mm. like we're not even going to waste our time. <laughs> they saw, they were, they were deciding and then they saw your put in and they were like, let's just cancel it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so I didn't know that you could do that. I thought once you called out, it was like kaput or this is like special plague rules that they put I mean, in. I feel like it's, yeah. I feel like it's That's special plague rules. So you were so. you were like mid contract in the sh at Drury Lane. Mm -hmm. We still had like three full weeks of runs left. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm I'm sorry that that happened, but a put in is still fun, and at least you know <laughs> you got to do the show at all. You know, I've I've True. talked to some folks on on this who were like we're having like final dress rehearsal, and then opening night was just like kiboshed or yeah. you know, any number of those things. So. I don't know. So because you had a put in, are you going to put the asterisk on your resume that says performed? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Plague rules. I'm like, I have not thought about that yet. I'm like, you know what? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, you should. You performed it. <laughs> you should. I did. You did the damn thing. <laughs> also, I think you could do it. And then if anyone questions it, you can be like, well, you can talk to the director about how they fucked me when I was about to go <laughs> yeah. up. Literally. Or just say, talk to my agent. I answered everything. Talk to and my agent. Sarah, what was your journey um, oh pre-plague? Yeah, so I was um, on the national tour of My Fair Lady. Um, I did the show on Broadway at Lincoln Center as a swing. And then 
joined the tour as a swing and also covering Eliza. And we we technically opened um, around like the holidays in DC. So we had been on the road for like a few months and then we were playing Columbus, Ohio, which is actually super close. My girlfriend and her family, well, her family's from Dayton, Ohio. So we, they were, her parents were literally coming to see the show and we did one before, I think we opened on a Wednesday, weirdly, like we had an uh, extra day the off. best day to open. Opened on uh, <laughs> Wednesday, that good old Wednesday evening crowd. Um, <laughs> so we opened on a Wednesday, did one show and it was, I mean, it was bananas too. Cause there were like a few crew people that were sick. And like, I was on because we had this cast member like coughing up a lung and everyone was like. God. Uh, <laughs> and oh, they wow. already had like shut down backstage tours, no stage door. You know, like we were kind of all like, are they gonna cancel? Are we gonna are and we then yeah, <laughs> like, uh this is Columbus, yeah. thanks for love. So sorry, love you, Columbus. Um <laughs> and her, so her parents were driving and they were like, We're pretty sure it's gonna be canceled, but if it is, like we can still go to dinner or something. So sure enough. Um, it was canceled and then they said tomorrow we're going to open up the theater so you can get anything out of your trunks um, we'd suggest getting anything out of there that you won't need for like the next month <laughs> here we are um, and we've officially been here we are 20 years later <laughs> <laughs> here we are um, we've officially been postponed through at least August of 2021 so you were so... on the very first leg of the tour right yeah, yeah, yeah. This was this is the first national leg of the Lincoln Center production, the Bartlett and Share production. You were also about to go on that Wednesday night when it was canceled? Just for an ensemble track, not for okay. uh not for Eliza. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I'm a swing and cover Eliza. So yeah, this um I don't know if I had been on for this track before. I mean it's interesting with my fair lady because it's like not I also did something rotten and was not a swing but it's interesting because like people don't really call out of my fair lady so that's kind of like perfect show to swing because yeah. it's like if you're feeling under the weather you can still stand with a big hat on and sing you know <laughs> for sure. so it's like no one's uh no one's twisting an ankle and ask it so sure. i guess let's sort of transition a little bit because both of you working professionally in cities that are very much not kansas city um, is interesting because you are both from Kansas, but sort of on the Western side, the, yeah, Western mm -hmm. side, right? I had to look at a map really yeah. quick. Um, South. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where were you, you were born and then what happened? So <laughs> where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? And when did you sort of get the bug? Um, I'll go, uh, I'll, okay. Yeah. Go Trump. Cause I, okay. So I was born in Winfield, Kansas. So like small town, um, and then my like hometown, we call it, it's our Kansas city, but you can call it Ark city. And that's like where I kind of like refer to where I'm from. Cause that's like where most um, of my family resides. But then we moved to Wichita when I was in fifth grade. And then that summer of fifth grade, I did music man at May's recreation center. And then, Shout out. <laughs> right. And then. From there, I had only kind of like dabbled and like I had always I had always like loved choir and like singing in general. So then I did like summer stuff at um, 
at Mage Rec for like four summers after that. And then I met Sarah in middle school. Oh. I was in, yeah, I was in seventh grade. You were in eighth grade. Yeah. And we did like a, the a, like probably illegal like condensed <laughs> version of "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown." I mean, look at us now. But yeah, that's we met in middle school. And then you guys went to high school together. Wow. Right? Okay, go on, Trev. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We went to high school together. We went to prom together. Can I together. just say, I remember the first time I remember seeing either of you was on Facebook and you guys used to create your prom outfits, right? Like you made them yeah. from like ordinary yeah. items. Like what did you guys use? I remember seeing them and being like, well, whoa. My sophomore year was googly eyes. My junior year with Trev. Sorry, so Trevor just, been a just to sort of go back made out of googly eyes. <laughs> A dress made out of yeah, googly so eyes. Yeah, so I would like I would go to a thrift store and get like a five dollar dress, glue items on it, and then like I sew, so I'd add tulle or whatever. So my sophomore year, I had a dress that was covered in googly eyes. Maybe so we can like of, I'll send you I'll send you pictures. So you were yeah. sort of serving in this small town in western Kansas, sort of <laughs> serving Met Gala looks at your prom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when did y'all like sort of realize or decide that theater was something or performing was something that you like could do professionally or like wasn't just something that you had to do on the side or like as a hobby? When did you like decide that like this was for you? So for me, it was sophomore year of high school. Um, I had done, it was my first show at MTYP that we did and it was All Shook Up. And I was like, my reasoning for doing All Shook Up was I was like, oh, I'm obsessed with Elvis. I was like, I was Elvis for Halloween like six years in a row growing up. Like I was in love with Elvis. And so I was like, let's go do this cool show. It's all Elvis music. And then I played Dean in it, who he's the one that like falls in love with the rain. He's like the soldier or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea going into it. I was like, I just want to do the show because I like Elvis. And then while we were doing that, I was like doing this show with a bunch of other like um, theater kids in the Wichita area. And they were like, oh, are you auditioning for Music Theater Wichita? I was like, I don't even know what that is. (laughs) And they were like, oh, well, it's like a cool place where they do like five shows every summer. Um, and like, we get to like be a part of them, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, cool. Like doing more theater during the summer. Like what else am I doing? Like literally nothing. So I auditioned and then I got, they have like interns and then Mm -hmm. they have like, um, the teen like youth ensemble and interns are, again, I literally had no idea. And (laughs) I remember I have this memory of Sarah coming into the choir room in high school and literally being like she being like you got an internship and I was like cool like (laughs) what does that like what does that mean and she was like it's like what I did last summer and I was like okay great what does that mean (laughs) you're not answering any of my questions (laughs) literally and then she was like you basically like are a part of the adult ensemble uh you just get like paid a little bit less because you're a teen intern just a little bit less. I was like, wait, I get paid? (laughs) Okay, that's all I needed to know. Okay, girl, I thought I was just doing this to hang out with my friends. (laughs) (laughs) So that's like when I kind of like started to be like, oh, you can like, you have like a viable career path within this. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think that's when it started. Yeah, I would say um, a little bit later for me, time-wise, but I think Music Theater Wichita played a huge role in both of, like, both of our career trajectories. Just because, I mean, and it's funny because if I didn't grow up in Wichita, I wouldn't have even known about it. Or, you know, like, it was just something, it was this great resource that happened to be in our backyard, so to speak. Um but yeah, I was an intern a few summers at Music Theater Wichita, which was great because then like the professional company that would come, they were all in college. So I'd ask them um, like in the ensemble, hey, what's your school like? What's your school like? So uh, but even my senior year of high school, I was auditioning for musical theater programs, but also looking at architecture programs randomly. Um, and then, yeah, and then my grandparents finally convinced me that indeed it was impossible to double major in musical theater and architecture and I had to choose. So looking back now, I was actually really good friends with an architecture major in college and he was always in studio, like staying up late, making little models. Like when I was in rehearsals, I was like, yeah, this never would have worked. Um, but yeah, so then I went to University of Oklahoma for musical theater and then yeah, I, but kind of with Trevor, like I didn't know that it was like a thing you could do as a job to make money um, until I started just being exposed to music theater, Wichita. Yeah, and to have, I think it's oh. so important when you're training to to have a, a moment to put all, to synthesize everything you're learning into like the actual work itself, because this is, there's a little bit of this in my alma mater, but definitely in other schools, I know that like, you spend all this time in the studio and you're learning and you're learning and you're researching and blah, 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 blah. But sometimes there, there just aren't enough roles to go around to like synthesize yeah. everything you're learning and like start, you know, developing your own process and taking from everything that you're learning and deciding like, this works for me, this doesn't, this works for me, this doesn't. And I feel like the only way to really sort of whack your own path with the machete is to just like work as much as possible. Where are you both at in your career now? And where do you feel like you want to be like soon or in 20 years? Like, where would you like to see oh, evolve to? And like simultaneously with like within the industry, are there certain changes or moments that you would like to see happen, especially as we return to performance at all from the plague oh trevor do you want to start do you want to open the can of worms first <laughs> sure, let's please do dive in so um virtually i mean let me preface with this of saying like <laughs> i i love performing i love um I love the theater. I love, like, I grew up in this and it gave me a safe space and a haven and a group of friends that I, like, will cherish forever. Um, I think at this moment in time, especially with um, this pandemic happening and the massive social justice movement simultaneously, um, I think that there is some sort of shift that needs to drastically happen. And I think like my presence in the space has always been a statement. So I am a queer um, indigenous person. So like basically the, the business is made up of less than 0.1% of people like me. Um, that being said, I do feel like it is never 
it's, I feel like it's hindered me much more than it has ever helped me because oftentimes I walk into a room and people look at me, even though it's lit, literally written on my resume, like my, my breakdown, where I come from, who I am. Um, it's oftentimes hard to kind of put me into a place because if you look at the musical theater canon, there's nothing that's specifically for me. There's literally nothing. If you want to like maybe say one of the quote dancing Indians in Peter Pan, maybe we can get into that. <laughs> but like, that's not where I'm coming from. That's not what I'm trying to do. So like at this moment in time, I don't necessarily know or see my own trajectory in any like sphere of reality for myself right now. Um, only because I'm still unsure of how to maneuver the business in this new found world as like what I'm bringing to the table. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess um, to clarify, would it like, something that I am constantly wondering is like the, the line we walk between creating work specifically to tell stories for folks like you and other marginalized folks um, and also casting those folks in traditionally white roles that that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with race. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? For instance, mm -hmm. like casting a, a queer or trans person as like the lead in a Tennessee Williams play, I feel like mm. can do a lot of like undoing and unlearning for the audiences who come to see that to be like, oh shit, this doesn't need to be played right. by like Jim Parsons right. or any other like white or straight or passing person. Right. Yeah. But I also I, think it's important to be developing works that specifically tell the stories of folks like you so that other folks can begin to understand those experiences. Right. Sarah, you were going to say something? No, I was just going to say, I was having this conversation with my girlfriend's family, actually, because we watched Jingle Jangle. The new, I think it's on Netflix, the new yeah. like holiday movie. Okay. And so we were having this discussion because it's like a predominantly black cast. And I, in, in a similar way of like theater, it we have to get to a point where like, it just becomes the norm. So you stop, like it stops being surprising. Like you stop sitting in a theater and like <laughs> your brain. And, and I think this speaks more to our programming, the three of us as like white people. And like, but that feeling of like, you sit down and watch Jingle Jangle and you're like, oh, everyone is black. Like it, <laughs> right. yeah, so what? I know exactly or what like you saying. sit right. down in the theater and you're like, oh, they cast a black person as Harold Hill or, oh, they cast a trans actor as, you know, this person yeah. in this play. Like it, it, it has to become the norm. Yes, yeah. it has to become yes. the norm. So it, it stops it being is. surprising. So it stops, it stops being a like, choice. Correct. Yeah. And you right. stop, like, it stops becoming, and, like, a trendy casting moment. Or, like, right. Right. and then you start focus on diversity. The creatives who are, like, yeah. you're like, oh, my gosh, good for them for casting <clears throat> a such person. It's like, no, like, that that shouldn't be rewarded. It should just be, it should just be. Like, yeah, yes, I think. I mean, in terms of inclusivity and um, diversity, because diversity is like a very much like, a diversity is a, a white supremacist tool to make people think that it, everything is more inclusive than it actually is. So yeah, I think in terms of um, 
the trajectory of where and what kinds of people and what I want to see on stage reflected back at me is the only example that I can really actively think about right now is watching the Savage X Fenty beauty show, like watch the fashion show of Rihanna's um, underwear line because because she people ask her about it they're like wow like what is like what is it that makes you want to cast because she casts people of any any color any size any gender she does not care if you're right for the show she's putting you in the show and so like the the inclusivity if you want to call it that that's the standard that I want to see and when people ask Rihanna about that Rihanna literally goes I'm not doing anything old. I'm not doing anything crazy. I'm not doing anything that's game changing. This is the way it should be. Mm -hmm. That's just how I feel. I'm going to piggyback off of Trevor's comments to sort of loop around of like where I'm at career wise. So I, at the start of this, um, my voice teacher and I were still doing like Zoom lessons and we still are, but it's honestly been really, really difficult for me to be like, creatively motivated and I think I'm a super type a person in general so unless I have like a deadline or something that I'm working toward it's very hard for me to be self-motivated or like self-inspired um and so I've had to like sit in this like nebulous what's happening we don't know it's like this very fluid time um creatively but also just like career-wise as a pro- like I don't know and I mean it's nice to knowing like okay for my brain knowing like okay we're not going back to tour until at least August so that gives me nine months to like do something because previous to that I'm sitting around every week waiting for our management to be like this next week's canceled this like and so it's like this stop and start so but my voice teacher is amazing Gwen Walker shout out um yeah. and we she was kind of like forcing me to show up because I was just like not motivated. And it finally got to the point where, you know, the killing of George Floyd and Brianna Taylor and hundreds of other people. Um, I just was like, I would so much rather go to a protest or like phone bank than practice voice. And so we got like, there was one day we had a voice lesson and I was like, I just don't want to do this right now. Like, it just seems really tone deaf in mm. terms of like, what are what am I doing? Like, the world is literally burning, and I'm <laughs> singing. I could have danced all night. Yeah, for what? For what? For what? Like, yeah. I literally was like having an existential crisis, and I came like looping around to this conversation that we're having of like white people in the industry. I had this like moment of myself of like recognizing my privilege in the industry and what that has afforded me. And if we come back from this, like I hope we do with like the changes in the industry, what that looks like for me as a white person in terms of like the work that I have to put in or like I use this example. I could be called in for Peggy Sawyer and 42nd Street and work on the sides and whatever. And I could be standing next to a black girl that gets called in who, because she knows how 
the white supremacist structure in this business works. She had to work five times harder at that material to be, because she has to come into the room here for them to not think, oh, what's it going to be like if we cast a black girl as Peggy Sawyer? Yeah. Right. So like I have to, I've had to reckon with like my privilege and also my microaggressions and my racism that I show up with when I go into rooms. And if I, if that black girl gets cast as Peggy Sawyer, it is racist and a microaggression for me to think, oh, well, I didn't get it because they wanted a diversity hire. Yes. No, bitch. It's probably because you didn't prep the material and you weren't as good. You weren't right. what they wanted. You weren't like, you didn't work as hard for it. And she had to work 10 times harder because the odds are stacked against her 20 times. Mm -hmm. So as a person, do I want to put in the work? Do I care about this enough to put Ooh, in the work like that. that my BIPOC minority brothers and sisters have had to put in their entire lives since they were little and started dance or started yeah. voice lessons to get to what right it's not like it's going beyond like the crap I don't know if we can cuss the like crap that Go you for overhear. It. let it fly <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's like going beyond the, like shit that you hear at auditions of like hmm. or just the shit you see of like them pairing the black people together to dance as like a couple like it's stuff like that that we <laughs> that's so like automatic and ingrained like all that has to be torn down from like the microscopic individual level of every single basic white bitch in this industry that thinks that they got the opportunities they got because they're more talented, but really it's because they're white. And if the industry changes like how we want it to, it's going to be a rude awakening for a lot of white people who realize just how hard they're going to have to work. Yeah. And I think that is a microcosm of <laughs> our entire society too, right? Because the same thing can be said yes. in any profession, business, yep. finance, yeah. I don't know, truly anything that is the case yeah. for. So that being said, from a career standpoint, I have to, I'm still in this process of like, okay, then do I want, like, do I want to put in the work? And it's okay if I don't, <laughs> like, it's okay if I'm like, oh, I don't think yeah. I do. But I like, and I've had this conversation um, with people in my cast and like, I have yet to bring it up to Bartlett share. Like when we go back into rehearsals, he's great because he always like wants to have these sort of conversations. But to that end, it's like, okay, Bartlett share. Okay, Chris Catelli, the white male creatives of our My Fair Lady tour. Like, what does it look like for you all to start saying no to opportunities to give those opportunities to marginalized groups of people. Like, what does it look like for you to say no and here's why? Like, like there has to be accountability at every level. And so personally, like kind of a shift for me, like I, a couple months ago, ran for, um, a delegate position for our union actors equity association our like convention so i'm a representative now i'm a delegate congratulations and that's really cool thank you thank you it's 
it's it's interesting and I love it because I love getting into like the weeds of that sort of stuff and like contracts and labor law and all that stuff is like very interesting to me um so it doesn't feel like work um but sort of to that end like I'm discovering that I think there's this assumption when you're in the business and you're a dancer or a singer or whatever like what do you do you teach like a lot of people that I know right now are like teaching dance or like that's how they're getting by and I would rather stick pins in my eyes than be in a room full of like seven-year-olds with tap shoes on and like like I just I just don't like to teach and it took me it actually took someone had reached out to me asking me to do a master class and I was like going back and forth and but and it's like this idea of like but I feel like I should I feel like I should and finally my girlfriend was like that she's also an accountant and like doesn't understand the like mm-hmm. whatever she does understand she's fine but she literally was like just say no right. <laughs> and I was like it was like this light bulb moment where I was like oh yeah I could I could just say no and then I was like okay why do I not want it and I was like well I feel like I should because they're asking me to teach a combo from something wrong and then I was like no so like three months in the pandemic I had this moment where I was like I don't want to teach and there's people that love to teach and that's like what they do I'm gonna let them do that right you know what I love to do I love to read contracts and talk about labor law and and then make it digestible to people in our union who literally just joined the union because they're like if I join the union, I could get paid more. Like, and they don't really understand. Insurance. Like, right. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think but, there's something interesting in that that is like, yeah, the the skill we have to develop to say no to projects or just to opportunities is kind of yeah. like something we never learned because we're just like so. Sorry, say it again, Brooke. I was just think it's counterintuitive to an actor. I feel to say no. Exactly. It's like constantly, like every opportunity you can, you must say yes, because you're lucky to do like, you know, and that sort of goes back to what you're talking about and making space for everyone and starting to say no to projects to allow for marginalized folks to have those positions. There's something about the way that we're trained and raised and brought up to think that this business is like for the scrappiest of people, you have to like, you know, fight nooth and tail to get anything, you know, at, at all. So to begin to say no yeah. to those opportunities, I think can feel like this like huge chore, but it's actually yeah. a, lot, a lot easier than that. Um, and actually like a really effective tool to open the door for other folks who wouldn't necessarily get those opportunities. Yeah, I so all of that to say, I'm sort of um, in January, I'm actually taking, um, uh, I'm working on a paralegal certification. It's like a year long program that actually has like a partnership through our union um, that I can take free classes. So I'm going to do like a year of that and then be paralegal certified. And then hopefully, you know, in like a few years transition to going to law school, but I'm super, and Trevor and I text about this all the time. Like I'm super passionate about protecting, you know, marginalized people in our union and like helping people understand their rights and giving them the tools um, (laughs) to like stand up for themselves because of that feeling of, I think as an actor, you feel that there's always someone right behind you to take the spot if you don't want it, which is why I'm so passionate about the union because 
I'm like, no, 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 we're professionals. We have protections that like you can stand up for yourself and you shouldn't have to worry about being replaced. Like you can say what you need. And there, we have a huge problem in this business all across the board with harassment, discrimination, sexual assault and harassment. I mean, there's so many areas that then when you reach out to the union, you're sort of met with this idea of like, well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. And so this is just how it is. The fear of retribution <laughs> from, you know, if you were harassed by. Right. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, we are a business and an industry full of some of the most creative minds on this planet. You cannot tell me that there is not a solution to <laughs> directors giving featured roles to people who will send them a nude pic. <laughs> like, like you can't you can't tell me we can't find a solution for that. And mm-hmm. so I guess that's kind of and like same thing with healthcare. Like the okay, yes, you can tell me to call my congressperson to advocate for Medicare for all, but in the meantime, how is my union protecting me? <laughs> like it just is like, and so honestly, a lot of what's led me to like this path is being like people being like, well, I don't know. This is just the way it's always done. I'm like, okay, then send me the contracts and the legal, <laughs> the legal jargon rules and I'll yeah. figure it out because there has to be a solution that like, or if there's not, we create one. Billionaires in this country find loopholes to pay zero in taxes we can find loopholes to hold accountable a like an abusive director. We can. Yeah. I will not accept that that is not a solution that we can find. I'm not going to Listen, y'all, she's speaking. She is speaking. <laughs> she is I just like I just am so much more passionate about those sort of things at this like period in my yeah. life and like kind of intertwining those things, right? Like what does it look like to see people being marginalized or discriminated against at an audition or whatever else and being yeah. able to be that person to go up to them and be like, these are your resources and like put it in layman's terms, you know? Yeah. I think this is cool because it opens up this like whole intersection that I think people think of very as very separate Mm -hmm. things of like art and Mm -hmm. activism. And it's like, what is in the middle of that? And what does it look like to apply activist sort of theories to the way that you produce and make theater, you know, and not even just theater, but all art in regards to pay and healthcare, but also in regards to who gets to see it. You know, theater is traditionally a very inaccessible, wealthy, privileged, Mm -hmm. white audience. To be able to see a show, you have to have disposable income, not be incarcerated, not be, have any kind of substance abuse issues, have a babysitter, like all of those things that so many of us take for granted are very common things that a lot of folks just don't have the resources to do. Okay, y'all. So in the meantime, we have to begin to wrap. But what, um, where, what do you have going on now? Are there certain projects that you're working on now, theater or not, and like things you could plug? And also, like, where can where can our, where can we find you? Yeah, talk about what you guys are planning, what you guys are cooking up together. Oh God! Yeah, I kind of did. We're 
okay, like long term, keep an eye out. We're trying to figure out a way to educate people about judicial elections in the United States. Okay, lofty goals. That's like side project. Um, for me, I don't, I mean, the My Fair Lady tour is doing a little like music video mashup thing, like spread holiday cheer. Um, again, we have like super talented people who love doing that sort of thing in our cast. And then they send me an email and tell me what they need from me. And then I will do it. I'm not going to think of it. <laughs> we all have our strengths. Um, so that's like it really. Um, I'm doing like some self-tape stuff for like TV film. Because wait, did you all know that TV film, the reason that SAG, because I was like, I had this union <laughs> meeting the other day of like, why is SAG going back to work before equity? Yes. Apparently, it's because TV and film is classified as an essential business federally. So they can, like, apparently there's been COVID outbreaks on set, like you wouldn't believe, but like they're an essential business. So they can film. Anyway, I digress. So I'm like doing a few things for that, um, that come my way. But other than that, I'm really just going to work on this paralegal certification and like hide out at um, my girlfriend's apartment in Pittsburgh. Um, in the meantime, I'll be quilting. I make t-shirt quilts. That's something I can plug. Um, yeah. I love, I love sewing. So basically if you follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore Q underscore Taylor, I think. Uh, if you follow me on Instagram, I post a bunch of stuff about all of that. Um, other than that, I think that's it. I'll be working on my paralegal certification. I'll be working on the Actors' Equity Convention. The way you I'll say that, like five things, out. like it's not a lot of shit. Like paralegal <laughs> certification, also make quilt, <laughs> also like on the equity. Um, and Trevor? Trev. Um, okay, so ever since that, um, good good unemployment ran out um so <laughs> i have been so i actually ended up being um a supervisor for the pennsylvania voter project so it's basically we are we were a non a non-partisan group working to get the vote out in pennsylvania thank you um, but our end goal obviously was to flip pennsylvania blue which <laughs> we did <laughs> And then, so now that ended up, that ended up finishing obviously on election day. And now I am working full time with, can you hear my brother crying? Oh, a little bit. Theo, <laughs> shut up. Theodore? He's Theodore, like, shut up. We're I didn't want it to flip blue. <laughs> <laughs> um, not in this house, not that baby. That baby's gonna be radicalized. Um, <laughs> And then now I'm working with um, full-time phone banking with Hard Hats for America, which is a working class organization. They um, outwardly endorsed John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock oh, yeah. for these Georgia Senate runoff races. Um, so I'm calling, I'm spending five days a week calling all day, just Georgia voters and just trying to make sure that we're registered. There's also a really incredible campaign that's happening on the ground in Georgia right now, but like pandemic and also i'm in kansas so i can't do that 
Um, but just helping out in whatever way I can, because that's really important, because voting is yes. right. You can find me on Instagram at Trevor Hostein McChristian. Hostein is H-O-S-T-E-E-N. It's my middle name. It's Navajo. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Trevor Hostein as well. Amazing. Trevor, you're on Twitter. Who told you to get a Twitter? Okay. Be nice to my friend. Don't do that towards my friend. It was me. It was me. I'm a guest here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This has been awesome. Y'all are so cool. Um, I hope we can keep in touch and keep me up to date with what you're up to. Um, everyone definitely go check out their pages, get some quilts, get informed about some, some voting and some elections happening in Georgia. We're going to make it happen. Wow. <laughs> um, well, thanks again, y'all. And we will talk so, Thank so you. soon.